Hey everyone, a while back we had an episode titled When Bad People Do Good Things with Keanu Hidari. In that episode, we discussed Jean Vanier, a spiritual leader who did a lot of good, but then after his death, it was discovered that he had sexually abused many women. When we recorded that episode, we also discussed a spiritual leader that Keanu and I both knew, someone we both worked with, but I cut all of that discussion out of the episode because information about that hadn't been released to the public. However, information about that spiritual leader, whose name is Rankin Wilborn, who was a pastor of a church in Los Angeles, has been released to the public. So I'm resharing this episode with the discussion of Vignet alongside the discussion of Rankin Wilborn at the same time. So we're going to discuss both spiritual leaders and this cognitive dissonance that occurs when you feel both affection for a spiritual leader, but then you're also very confused and wounded when you find out they are an abuser. So that is the discussion that we're having today. You can find links to both articles that outline what happened in each of these situations in the show notes. Just a warning, if you didn't listen to episode four, this episode does refer to sexual abuse, just in case that is something that is challenging for you. I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. How's it going? How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing good, doing good. I'm really glad that you reached out and you wanted to talk because I think that this is uh, this is fun. It's fun to reconnect. My memory, Absolutely. yeah, likewise. My memory of you working at PCC. This is all just my memory. I was like sitting at the lunch table with just some giant book on the table in front of me, <laughs> trying to engage people in these deep, you know, theological debates. And most people are just like, "Eh, I kind of want to eat my sandwich." but I loved it. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> Half the time, I didn't even know what we were talking about, but I thought it was great. <laughs> what was your experience like working at PCC? I think when you, when we were talking privately through the, through text, you kind of said it was an issue of perspective. <laughs> and I think that was truly my experience where it was the most jarring cognitive dissonance where on the one hand, I'd never had a single negative experience with Rankin. I yeah. think all it was was purely high-level intellectual conversation. And even, and I think he liked the fact that I disagreed with him on a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Like we would get into sparring things, but I think I was, it, that, that's his wheelhouse. His yeah. wheelhouse is like high-level intellectual abstraction that does not involve real, dirty, you know. Relational. Um, relational. And that's a topic we'll get into, relationality. But I think because I never had that kind of intimate, deep, personal relationship with him where I had to actually work with him as a subordinate. But I was a research assistant. I basically, he told me to do, he told me to do X, Y, Z. I did X, Y, Z. And then casually we would talk about, you know, really hot button issues in Presbyterian eschatology or Presbyterian theology. And like, we talk about whatever. And then that was pleasant. But then, and if you if you want to use this, you can just make sure you beep out the name. But I talked to yeah, um, and she and I had like 
10, 11 lunches, dinners, and I, she's really a close friend. We, we kind of fell out of connection, I think, just because of uh, coronavirus, but, like, we would talk a lot, and, like, I went to a few, like, lunch conversations with her while I was working in the office, and the things she told me about the internal dynamics of the church and the things, like, I was being able to key into, it felt almost like participating in a drama that wasn't my own, and I, I just started thinking, there's allegations of sexual misconduct, and then that, that is, that's taken care of, but then that's here, and then there's an entire bureaucratic administrative structure that a spiritual leader is trying to manipulate to accomplish a particular spiritual ecclesiological vision that ultimately results in burnout, spiritual abuse, and lack of recognition of people's effort and work and lack of, you know, transparency, lack of, I mean, as close to egalitarian structure as possible, but it, it just turns into a kind of vertical, do what I tell you. Mm. And I think you, you, have the, you have this kind of ironic impression where it's like, okay, this vertical, do what I tell you, things should be more efficient, right? <laughs> but <laughs> that wasn't the case at all. And the, that kind of combination of, you know, manipulative environments, but also lack of efficiency is just, I heard that story said in 10 different ways from 10 different people. And the culmination of everything in terms of how he was, Catholics use the term defrocked, but I don't know what Protestants say. It's, I think, disordained or removed from ordination. I think the reaction of, and the anger from yeah. the, from the congregation, it was just, it just adds to that layer of complexity that the congregation was told a story <laughs> about and it's a beautiful sermon if you go back to it, like the 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 the, the Isaiah verse that Rankin preached on at Santa Monica High School about how uh, a bruised reed God will not strike, and he talks about being burned out, about you know the need to recalibrate, and the congregation bought it, hundred yeah. percent. So there's no there's no sense of like there's a very generic admission of responsibility for cultivating an environment of competition and hostility, but there's no accountability attached to that. And so you have the church being thrown into disarray, finding guest pastors, and a congregation not walking along with the internal dynamics of what's actually happening. And so you have the congregation who ostensibly loves the pastor being blindsided by what's yeah. actually happening inside. And I think that conflict is extremely bad and toxic for sure um and yeah how did you handle navigate your own experience with rankin and your tales of the other side of the story i think that's an excellent question i think what i what i realized is i tried to become more attentive and more careful to what he actually said and I tried to distance myself from, I, I didn't want to insert my personal life in my work life. And I didn't want it to make it seem like I was giving too many overtures to, you know, invite socialization with them. That I just wanted to make it seem like, you know, I'm a professional, I'm going to do work for you. But I was just very fortunate that I wasn't part of, you know, his circle of abuse. Yeah. But I'm going to be honest, it was complete cognitive dissonance for me. Yeah. Just because when you see when you see someone who's so bright and so smart, who captivates audiences, who doesn't, you know, have hokey, shitty sermons, 
mm-hmm. but the way they administer an organization is just so bad. Yeah, I had so many conversations with people throughout all of it, and especially after he was deposed. Deposed is the word. Yeah, yeah just in tears because they could not imagine that this man who cared for them, who counseled them, who showed up at their father's funeral or their mother's cancer bed could have done these things. They just couldn't. And the reality is he did do those things. They really happened. And, and he also did the other things too. And cognitive dissonance is right. Two, two very seemingly opposing things are true at the same time. Yeah, and I guess that probably leads into the article you sent me. Yeah, if you'd like, I could give you like a brief, or I could frame our conversation about Venia a little bit and to kind of give listeners a, a, just a, a brief intro into what, why this is so important. So Jean Venier was a, a Canadian Catholic theologian, and he died in Paris, actually in May of last year, so 2019. So in 1964, he, made, he founded this organization, which is basically, you can think of it as a charitable, voluntary organization called L'Arche, or The Arc, The Arch. And it's dedicated to working with these people who have profound intellectual and physical disabilities. What was cool about L'Arche is that it, it's a communitarian-based organization where people with these disabilities and their caretakers live together in intentional community. So today, the, 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 the Umbrella Corporation, L'Arche International, has offices in, I think, 38 countries around the world, and it has 153 of these communities. So Vanier was also a theologian, and he wrote some really important books, some of which have been very influential on me. So here's where the story gets a little bit dark. In February of 2020, uh, a report commissioned by L'Arche and conducted by an external organization revealed that Vanier had sexually abused six women in France from about 1970 to 2005. The report said that Vanier engaged in, quote, manipulative and emotionally abusive relationships with them. And strangely enough, Vanier appealed to quote, highly unusual spiritual or mystical explanations to justify his behavior. So the question then for me becomes, how do you reconcile the abuse of an abuser with the good they've done? And I think in the case of Vanier and dot, 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 if you also want to include the beginning portion of what we talked about, dot, dot, dot. Uh, Yeah. In the case of Vanier especially, I think this is a wonderful case study to begin thinking about this weird dynamic that we have here. And I say weird dynamic because the, the thing you just expressed, the fact that people are in tears over a, a, a pastor being deposed because of his perhaps tangential, perhaps important role in their life versus the horrible things that they do privately. That again causes this cognitive dissonance. But yeah, that's, that's a little bit about Vanya and, and how he's been received. Uh, Notre Dame removed two awards posthumously in wow. light of revelation. I mean, I appreciate that. And it's, and it's this question of 
this is what I was thinking about beforehand was, is he a bad person who did good things or a good person who did bad things? Mm. And that's, that's the, and it, it comes down to this question of evil and theology of evil. And do you believe evil exists or are we born into evil? Are we born into goodness and then we become evil? And that's a whole other subject, but it's so important. It's an important question to ask. And I love the article that you sent Absolutely. me, which I will share in the show notes is it ends. It really, it just really hit me the way it ends. It ends with the person who wrote the article. I have no answers. That's how it ends. And it just ends in this place of, I don't, I don't, I don't know. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast is, this desire to know the right answer and have the right answer yeah. and be able to put everyone in these categories, mm -hmm. this desire to be right leads to this extreme fear. And that extreme mm -hmm. fear leads to the damage and the abuse. And it might start out with good intentions, but it becomes abusive. That's one facet of it for sure. Mm -hmm. I do think that sexual abuse and I could say any kind of abuse, honestly, there's this level of inhumanness that I think a person has to arrive at to be able to do that. And, and mm -hmm. that is a difficult, difficult situation to navigate. You, you mentioned, yeah, Diane Lamberg, do you know a, a lot about her? I actually don't know too much about her, her own scholarship and works, but I actually came across her Twitter account and I, I, I studiously follow her tweets and like look at the articles that she links to and publishes. And it's been super helpful for me in beginning to think about this issue, which for me, I was in a privileged position, you know, being male, not necessarily growing up in the church where I have not been attuned personally to conversations about, you know, rumors of sexual indiscretion of priests or pastors. I haven't been in that community I became a Christian when I was 14. And so because of that like long gap of not having, and actually having the great fortune myself of not being in, in spaces where I was directly exposed to that kind of stuff until relatively recently. I, I think what that's, what that's done for me is given me a, a set of disadvantages and a set of advantages. The advantages are I can have, you know, quote unquote, distance and objectivity from it. The, the disadvantage would be that I don't know the pain and the personal stories from a firsthand perspective. And I think because of that, my place is to listen. And I think her Twitter account has been very instrumental in teaching me what it means to listen pastorally and to listen and to not listen for the sake of solving the problem, to not listen for the sake of judgment or righteousness or whatever, but just to listen and hear someone who, who, for whatever reason, has to narrate their own story. Telling our stories from what her account has taught me is part of what it means to reintegrate one psyche, to reintegrate spiritually. If you don't have a chance to, if you go through catastrophe, your life is destroyed in more than one way. And if you don't have the chance to reintegrate who you are, to reintegrate that story of who you, who, of who you tell yourself that you are, then there's no way to get better. There's no way to, to move on and deal with trauma. Yeah. Would you say 
in a situation of cognitive dissonance when you have both a horrible experience and a beautiful experience with the same person that maybe the way to approach it is not which one is he or which you know I need to know but rather to tell just tell the story just tell Mm. tell the story as it happened the good the bad the evil the beautiful and and that it's more about your journey and your reintegration and Mm -hmm. your your own spiritual interaction with that as opposed to having this black and white category for a human being i think this this kind of manichaean distinction between good and evil it's not theologically it's extremely important in terms of understanding that you know the cosmic role of god and and all that kind of stuff and you know god defeating evil but i think when it comes to looking at a world that's poisoned by forces that we can't understand we do our best to understand them and we've gone a long way since you know measuring people's skulls in 1800 to now giving people medication i think we've gone a long way but we still don't understand motivation and i think a purely environmental or a purely genetic biological explanation won't give us satisfaction it doesn't help an abuse victim to say this person has a damaged brain that's why they sexually assaulted you that's not, that's not it. There's more to the story because people with sexually, people who have experienced uh, sexual abuse at the hands of those who have quote unquote damaged brains. Let me say that again. People who uh, have damaged brains don't always uh, commit acts of sexual abuse. So I think there's a, there's a sense in which we need another frame. We need a more uh, expansive holistic frame. So when it comes to someone reintegrating into some semblance of normality, we have to avoid, I think, this, this Manichaean distinction between good and evil because God will take care of evaluating the hearts of every single person. But when it comes to the lived daily experience of life, we have good and evil within us. Mm-hmm. It's, not helpful. it's not helpful to, to dwell on understanding how someone you once loved and cherished or worked under in a professional capacity and also loved and cherished could then abuse that trust in such a profound and intimate way. It's not helpful to then say, this person is evil, this person is good. I think it, it, it harkens back to something you mentioned. It's that person tapping into a state or a stage even of inhumanness and working and living from that inhumanity. And I think because most people don't go about their day living and dwelling in inhumanity, that encounter with darkness opens a space of profound doubt. And we have a tendency to blame ourselves for what happened. For sure. What would you say about our responsibility for justice and to act justice when we do have power and we are in a position of power in light of the fact that we see this person doing both good and good and evil? I think what's really important for me is to say that the very, very foundation of all inner church conversations about spiritual abuse cannot be a practical conversation about saving faith. And 
obviously no one would ever admit to that, right? No one would ever say, we're trying to cover this story up. Like no one's gonna say it that way. But it's always about respectability politics, saving face and blaming victims. And that, that has to stop. And granted, it's a little bit arrogant and presumptuous of scholars and academics to, to give you know, prescriptions about what, what has to change because people on the field know what they're doing. People who are dealing with the broken shards of our humanity after experiences of abuse are the ones who are doing the actual healing. So I'm not gonna offer any prescriptions, right? But one way to perhaps think about what's going on is to think of what the theme of apocalyptic means. And the word apocalyptic is not what you think some kind of Nicolas Cage left behind film. Uh, it's actually the word for revelation. And I think what's important about that word is the basis of our humanity, the basis of our value is inherent because we're God's creatures, but it is authenticated and confirmed because of what Christ has done. And that authentication, that act of confirming the value of every single human being is sealed, signed, and delivered by the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The one word beyond apocalyptic that I would say to start that conversation is the Greek word aletheia, or aletheia if you want to use whatever pronunciation, but it's, it's the Greek word for disclosure, truth. And I think disclosure and truth is an excellent way to think about the, the nature of truth and reality. It is a gift that has been disclosed to us by God. Once we start from the foundation that Christ is at the center of our, even the way we think about reality, epistemology, we have a whole set of ethical commitments and considerations that come from that. And I think once we know then that the very, very basis of how we think about the world is telling the truth, that God begins his story of our reconciliation, not by an act of bloody murder and sacrifice that God murdered his son. That's just, that's one way to go about thinking about it, but an act of self-disclosure, an act of revealing himself in the history of his deeds, an act of saying, I am here for my people. I'm here for the brokenness, the, the shame, the guilt, the abuse. I'm going to enter into that as well. And he reveals that brokenness in sometimes unflattering ways in the gospel. So once we know then that Alessaya disclosure is this kind of big capital T truth that's being talked about in say the first chapter of the gospel of John, I think we know then that both those in power who have administrative responsibilities, who have anyone in a hierarchy of a church, and I would also venture to say anyone in the laity who has access to information, it is an act of blatant disregard. It's not just a mistake. It's not just, and I don't like talking about committing sins with reference to violating a certain code of ethics, because that's not what I think sin means in, in any of the, the Pauline letters. I don't think that's what sin means in the gospel. Um, but that's beside the point. If a lay person sees spiritual abuse, psychological, emotional, sexual abuse happening in the church, if anyone does, they need to go back to what the heart of the gospel is. And it's not a question about going to heaven or hell primarily. It's about, it's about God revealing the nature of who he is through Christ. And that act of disclosure is a commitment that I'm going to be with my people, heal them, restore them, restore sight to the blind, you know, give food to the poor, all those things that we know about being church for so long. Once we see a set of behaviors that don't align with that, 
we have an ethical, spiritual, religious commitment to disclose it. And that's, that's what I think I wanted to say. That's my, that's my one key point there. The lack of, the lack of a passion to disclose is not just a spiritual failure. It's not just a, an example of cowardice. It's not just an example of laziness. What it is, is a very denial of the character of God himself. And I think once we begin to think about what's at stake by denying God, by choosing not to disclose. And again, I should clarify, I'm not talking about someone who's been victimized themselves because that's a whole nother conversation. I'm saying someone in a position of power who knows about an instance of abuse, a lay person who knows about abuse and chooses to not go forward, uh, whatever institutional avenues, whatever legal avenues exist, uh, and I'm sure your podcast can provide resources for people who, who have been in that position. But I would say that it's an, it's an act of denying the very character of what it means to be a human being, to choose to not disclose evil, corruption. That's my take on it, at least. Yeah. And I think that that could be helpful in answering this question for someone who has experienced spiritual abuse. Mm. When you ask the question, how can I trust the church again? How can I trust God again? How can I trust mm. other Christians again? Mm-hmm. We are, are a pastor or men or fill in the blank mm-hmm. with someone who violated them and was in a position of spiritual authority or used God or used scripture to to mm-hmm. cause harm, to be able to say within this wider story that we believe God is telling, that's a false story. It's a, it's a right. false story. And someone who lives within that false story, or like you said, doesn't expose that false story, they're, they're culpable. It's, it's not the story that is being told. It is not, right. it's not the story that's being told. It's hard. I mean, it's definitely hard when you're in the trauma and you're in, in the filth and you're, and you're recovering from it and your life has been altered. You have lost your job. You have lost relationships. You have lost your community, any of the things that come out of that. But to be able to say, this is to even just have this category of like, this is not how it was supposed to be. This is not mm-hmm. how it was intended to be. I think that that can be helpful because mm. when we go into this, I want to know why, and I want to know if they were evil, or I often know, I want to know if they were good, or were they both evil and good, or how could someone possibly do this, or why did someone do this? You can just do this little rat race in your brain and never have an answer, which is why I really appreciate that article ending with, I have no answer. Like, to be able to sit in that place of, I don't know why, but I know it's not their story. It's not the true story. It's not the story Mm -hmm. that that person is supposed to be living in. And they roped me into a false story and I'm suffering the, the, the side effects of that false story. I think another, another thing that, that really helped me come to grips with, and again, uh, this is a very amateurish, almost silly attempt to even address the question of the problem of evil, right? Because 
I'm not going to even assume that there's an answer. We've been talking about this for more than the history of religion itself for six, six point five thousand years of written language, right? But I think the work of recent New Testament scholars in understanding what is actually being talked about when Paul says, Pistis Christo, the faithfulness of Christ, the cornerstone of our faith is not anything we do in the first instance. And this is something that's been articulated not just from Protestants, but also Greek Orthodox and also Catholic. Uh, scholars, that at the first instance, the very, very foundation of faith is Christ's own faithfulness to his mission. And I think once we recognize that the beginning of our faith is Christ's own faith, and we get to participate in that, we know that we're linked to a broader story. And that's the key. What is that broader story? I remember when I first got into Christianity, I became this like, you know, ravenous, cage stage Calvinist, read this book by John Piper called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And I think today, if I was going to rewrite that book, I would say 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Live. And I think that that's the key difference here, that if our story is about God punishing and murdering people because of sin and, and putting all of that on Christ, yeah, that's one way to look at it. But what exactly is being vanquished on the cross? It's cosmic evil. It's in the Hebrew Hashetan. It's, it's in Colossians, the language of after he rose from the dead, he, he made a parade and humiliated all the demonic powers and the powers and principalities. He, he put an end to the everlasting force of death and evil. The question then becomes, why do we still experience death and evil? And I think that's, that's the, the tried and true category of the already and the not yet that the beautiful things that someone like Jean Vanier did, opening up communities where people who are the most vulnerable, who are despised and hated by mainstream culture and society, who are given no voice, no representation, can live and be cared for uh, without cost, without judgment, without fear. That's that inbreaking of the covenant community, that inbreaking of God in space and time saying, no, I'm here. I'm going to tell you what your story is. Your story is that you're wonderfully and beautifully made and your value and you deserve a community of people who don't abuse your trust, your, your free will, and your bodily constitution. But then we have the not yet part of that equation, the already and the not yet. And the not yet is the same person violating the trust of six women who trusted him to the ends of their own being and saw that trust betrayed in the most humiliating way. And I think living in that tension of the already and the not yet, the only way to do that without going crazy is to recognize that the already will expand and balloon to the complete victory of God. And that victory of God is his justice being vindicated in his resurrection. And what all that fancy theological talk ultimately means is we have a community of people who believe this truth, who should be living into the truths that Christ modeled for us. And that means consensual relationships, ethical, horizontal relationships, building shalom, building the Garden of Eden on earth today. And I'm sorry to say a lot of churches are far from that. A lot of communities are very, very far from that kind of Eden-like garden metaphor 
of rebuilding hope and restructuring broken lives. And I think even if we just inch towards thinking about the problem of evil in this way of the already and the not yet, I think it takes off some of the stress of how could someone do this? Because we know that we're living in, in the midst of the mire and the muck, but the horizon has already come. We've already seen the hope and the glory. We're just waiting for its growth, like, like a, a little sapling growing in a wood. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing. And I think someone like me who's gone through 10 different denominations, who has seen the worst and the best of, of Christians and non-Christians too. I think what I see is that the church is still strong and growing in the lives of people you'd least expect. Who would, who are those, the people you would least expect for you? I think one of the reasons why I decided to come on this podcast is because of my own experience with abuse survivors in Ann Arbor and survivors who decide to not let that story define who they are and instead say, I'm going to use my story to empower other people to come forward. And if someone is not ready yet to come forward, then at least I'm going to empower someone to seek healing and reconciliation. Because people have this tendency, some people have the tendency in this, this circle of community to say they have to get back in the church first. Put them back in the church. Once they're back in the church, then we'll heal them, right? Like, I understand the temptation to do that, but that's, it's just not a good idea because you're exposing someone to the, to the signposts of their trauma and you're re-traumatizing them. I think when people who've experienced this get this almost supernatural courage to say, I want to be a voice for the voiceless. That's the kind of source of hope that I'm talking about, that I see the face of Christ in, in, in people who've experienced the most suffering, the most trauma at the hands of the church and at the hands of other people who decide to say, not I'm going to become a, you know, a, a martyr for the church, but that I want my story to empower other people who've been in a similar place to know that that's not the end. The final page of your story does not have to be shame, guilt, alienation, and estrangement from yourself, from other people. And even in the most ideal cases from the person who, from letting the person who abused you become the psychological ghost that haunts your dreams, that makes you physically sick. That the gift of grace and the gift of forgiveness does not mean throwing justice away. But the gift of grace and the gift of forgiveness means being able to turn your page. Yeah. When I see people across, well, I mentioned, I mentioned that, you know, so, so many Christians and so many people across so many different Christian denominations are deciding to come forward with their stories. It's this wonderful horizontal growth of the Holy Spirit across all of the church so that when I see those people who decide to come forward with these stories to, to get into that spirit of of disclosure, that's a source of profound hope and inspiration for me. Yeah. I was on the phone with someone who experienced horrible abuse in the church and we it was a very healing conversation it was this person is navigating do I go back to church I'm I still would say I believe in God but the church is just and I don't know I don't know where the hope for the church is and I I go to I've gone I visit and I I have this horrible reaction to being there and I can see the agenda 
of everyone all over the place and I can just smell the power and I can smell the politics. And so where, where is the hope for the church? And I said, I believe it's us. I believe it's those of us who've been horribly wounded. Our bullshit meter is super high and we've already lost everything. We're going to walk in there and we're going to be like, no, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to shut up because we saw what silence did. I believe that that is one way God is going to redeem the church. I don't think it's the best way. I don't think it's the (laughs) ideal way. I don't think it's the way it should be. But I do think that it's the way it's going to be. I think Mm -hmm. that that is the story that needs to be told. So I really appreciate you saying that. This is great. This is awesome. No, it's super helpful. I think it's super, super helpful. And I think just like a wide range of audiences too, of people, I already, I just already know that there's like, there's intellectual people, there's people who just, you know, want to know that it's okay for them to feel a certain way, you know, there's just a a wide um, range of audience. And so I think that you definitely speak to a portion of that audience, which I think is going to be really helpful. I think this is an issue that people don't want to talk about, but they really want to talk about. Does that make sense? Like, it's an issue that is burning in the mind. And my my orientation now towards the Roman Catholic Church, I think there are so many people who need to hear that it's not the end of your faith journey. If that means you don't go to church anymore or whatever, but God does not have to not be a part of your life in that healing process. And I think people have to hear that, that unbelief and doubt and faith and faithlessness is not a solution to it might be a justifiable response but it's not a solution to um, spiritual abuse and I think people in the Catholic Church definitely need to hear that because right yeah and I think that that's that's where so many of us have found ourselves and just like okay I don't I'm not in this place where like I'm an atheist and I don't believe God exists, but then I don't, I've only ever associated him with this institution. Now what do I do? I don't, I don't know what to do. And Richard Rohr, he's a resource. I think um, his book Falling Upward is going to be a resource. Yeah. He's, his book Falling Upward was just so beautiful. I listened to it on audio book and then I want to read it again, but I just, I just felt like he was he as devoted as he is to an organized form of religion he was so open about how toxic and corrupt it can be and also like this organic non-institutionalized community is probably closer to jesus's original definition of church anyway and mm-hmm. and that i think that because what, what's really sad to me is I think a lot of people are going to church because that's what good Christians do, right. but they're, they're in so much pain and yeah. they're, they're hurting so badly. And like you said, they're being re-traumatized and due to no fault of potentially the church that they're attending and they need to take a break. It's, it's not good for their emotional, spiritual, physical health to just force themselves to do it because that's what good Christians do. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the reasons why we don't stop these 
people from hurting others is because good Christians honor people in authority because good Christians, you know, good Christians don't gossip, good Christians don't whatever, insert whatever. And then this stuff just is allowed to happen because we're being that's why good Christians. That's precisely why I think in terms of that stereotype of good Christians, once we begin to say that it's not just a behavioral question, but if someone decides to stay silent, that is an act of betrayal of the very message of the gospel itself. I think that's a very powerful suggestion. Whether or not people accept it is another question. But I think once we think about the Greek words and the cultural context of disclosing, bringing in the good news, it's a breaking in. It's a glass shattering. It tells us something that we didn't know before. And I think once we have the courage to bring to light what was in darkness, we're doing the task of God. We're, we ourselves as laity are doing the task of God that the administration and the hierarchy don't want to do or yep. are reluctant to do. Amen. thanks for joining us today i'll see you next time